Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And on today's episode of Weird House Cinema, we are going to be talking about the 1961 British kaiju movie, Gorgo, which I just saw for the first time a couple of weeks ago when my friend Ben brought it over for a movie night. So one of the first things you might be thinking is, did I hear the first line of the description right? Is this a British giant monster movie? Yes, you did. Why is that concept inherently so funny? I don't really know, but to to me, certainly it is. And I wonder if you have the same thought, Rob. So, like, I, I was interrogating this further. So, Japanese giant monster movie could be funny in execution, but it's not necessarily funny in principle. Like, the original Godzilla is not funny at all. It's a very dark, grim, serious, great movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, an American giant monster movie, I'd say same thing, could be funny in execution, not necessarily funny in principle, but a British giant monster movie where a huge rat creature attacks London is just fundamentally hilarious. Yeah, I'm not sure what, quite what it is, because you do find giant monster kaiju movies in various film cultures, and it's it doesn't feel inherently out of place in in other film traditions. But yeah, there's something about the British setting and all the British actors. I don't know. It 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 makes it unique and it does maybe make it a little bit hilarious unintentionally. But at the same time, there are a lot of things about this movie that are beautifully executed. It has um it has a similar problem that a lot of giant monster movies have, which is that there's a lot of city stomping at the end, just relentless smashing of buildings and, and such that goes on for a long time. That's not unique to Gorgo. 
But the City Smashing looks fantastic. It looks great. They've got uh, really good models. Uh, we, we get to see a creature smashing well-known landmarks throughout London, you know, really laying into Big Ben and the Tower Bridge and all that stuff. And it, it, it is really pleasurable to watch. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the basic formula uh, in play here. <laughs> Don't go into Gorgo expecting something drastically different from any other giant monster movie that you've seen, but it is well executed. There are a lot of uh, solid talents that were involved in making this film, and it, it does find some places to do things that, if not entirely unique, at least they, 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 they come up with an interesting palette with which to paint it. Yeah, I would agree. There are some other things that work kind of well. I would say in the first act, there's an interesting sort of folk horror uh, vibe that is unexpected for a movie of this type. We can talk more about that when we get into the plot. But I think we should start off by exploring the question of what is Gorgo, right? So Godzilla is a giant bipedal reptile or lizard of some kind with atomic radiation breath who emerges from under the ocean. Gamera is a giant fire-breathing turtle from the Arctic that can fly. King Kong is a giant prehistoric ape from Skull Island. What is Gorgo? I would describe Gorgo as a gigantic toothy monster with a similar bipedal posture to Godzilla who looks like a cross between a, a frilly-eared lizard and a satanic rat with red glowing eyes. He comes out of the sea off the coast of an Irish island, and he is thought to be some kind of ancient god, at least at first. Yeah, and uh, I would also add that he has pretty pretty much has the body of a rock'em sock'em robot, like not not in the sense <laughs> yeah. that it's metallic, but in the basic posture and proportions. Um, uh, it looks like he's ready to throw some punches, and I guess ultimately does throw some punches at major London landmarks. And, and the way you can kind of see him rotating his torso as he reaches with his arms. Yeah. Now, if I there were, I had plenty of scenes later in the film to stare at this monster and try and come up with some headcanon for everything I'm seeing. And I will say the teeth, the more I looked at them, the more I, I started thinking, well, these are like uh, filter feeding teeth. Uh, like this is an aquatic organism that's had millions and millions of years to sort of evolve. <laughs> Maybe it's a filter feeder. Maybe that's what those teeth are all about. That's a good point. So you might think giant toothy rat, uh, lizard creature, and think a, a smaller number of large pointy teeth. You know, maybe each pointy tooth is like the size of a sharpened boulder. But no, instead, it's a lot of tiny pointy teeth. It's more like a mouthful of swords. And so I think with that in mind, you could also look at that as like the, the bristles or the baleen of a filter feeder. That, that, that's, a good, that's a good connection, Rob. Thank you. But but, you know, this is not the only the, the only connection between this uh, monster and uh, and the world of actual uh, terrestrial biology, because the creature's name, Gorgo, is allegedly based on an actual dinosaur, the Gorgosaurus. Now, they don't say that in the movie. In the movie, they later explain that it Well, first, when we learn the name Gorgo, they literally say, we don't know why he's called that. <laughs> and, but then the uh, the the scheming circus operator who is exploiting Gorgo for cash, uh, he explains that he named the creature Gorgo after the, the Gorgon Medusa. So there is a common connective thread that we could get into, but they don't say in the movie that it's named after this dinosaur. 
Yeah, so this might have been something that was more of a stronger connection at some earlier phase of production. Uh, it could also be something that's been kind of added after the fact. But uh, the, the truth is, there is a Gorgosaurus. The Gorgosaurus was not named after this movie. Uh, this, uh, this is the, the, it literally means fierce lizard. This creature lived during the late Cretaceous period, 80 to 73 million years ago in parts of what is now the United States and Canada. So, you know, I guess its range wouldn't actually have, have, uh, extended over to the British Isles. But anyway, it was a large theropod and we have at least 12 complete or near complete skulls and various partial skeletons to go off of. It was a, uh, Tyrannosaur, not as big as a T-Rex, but still quite impressive at 8 to 9 meters or 26 to 30 feet in length. It was first described and named by Canadian paleontologist Lawrence Lamb, that's not spelled like my name, it's L-A-M-B-E, in 1914. And the Gorgo part of the name, Fierce, is in fact related to the ancient Greek word Gorgos, which means grim or dreadful, reflected in the naming of the mythical Gorgons. Okay, so at the very least, the, the real Go Gorgosaurus and the Gorgo of the movie get their name from the same place. Yes. And, you know, if this strikes a chord with anyone out there, you're like, where have I heard about Gorgosaurus recently? Well, the Gorgosaurus actually just made the news last month. Uh, this was reported about in the New, in the New York Times uh, under their ancient meat uh, <laughs> reporting desk. Uh, th this uh, concerns a 75-million-year-old Gorgosaurus fossil it was discovered with fossilized stomach contents. Uh, this was the first, apparently, for a Tyrannosaur. It was a juvenile, and the stomach contents were the hind limbs of two small feathered dinosaurs, according to Michael uh, Greshko in his New York Times article covering a study authored by Francois Thorin, the curator of dinosaur paleoecology at the Royal Tyrell Museum in Alberta. Uh, they said that if it had grown to adulthood, it would have likely moved on to much bigger prey. Uh, but as a smaller critter, it was having to eat the legs of uh, various bird creatures. Uh, so at any rate, Gorgosaurus still making the headlines, at least, you know, as far as stories about ancient meat and, uh, and, uh, and ancient chicken legs goes. Now, you included an illustration from the New York Times article. It's an artist's mm -hmm. impression of what the living juvenile Gorgosaurus would have looked like. And this is a much more spindly creature than the Gorgo of the film, which is yes. uh, which is very dense and bulky. And, and uh, apart from its rat-like head, it's got the uh, the more classic uh, sort of storybook illustration of the Tyrannosaur that's very sort of bottom heavy and has like big legs and, and lower body parts. Right, right. But before you Gorgo fans look up this article and say, this is not accurate, let me suggest that the Gorgo that we see in this movie has, again, uh, evolved for life in an aquatic setting over millions of years. So he has kind of like that whale body going on. Ah, uh, so uh -huh. you know, we, if we're being generous, we might say, well, it's it kind of makes sense. That's right. Yes. The Gorgo's body has, has evolved for insulation purposes. Yeah. Mm. So a little science there, but Believe me, the science is not necessary for your appreciation uh, and understanding of this movie. Okay, so on we, we've talked a little bit before on the podcast when we've done other kaiju or giant monster movies um, about the various subgenres that these movies fall into, uh, and I, I thought it might make sense to try to figure out where Gorgo fits into that subgenre map. Uh, so a few of the main types of giant monster movies are, I would say, first of all, 
Kaiju the Destroyer, an example of this would be the original Godzilla. Uh, a, a giant beast arrives unexpectedly and brings ruin to humankind, and the monster must somehow be defeated or driven away. Second category I would call Kaiju the Defender. Uh, good examples here would be the later sequels involving almost any of the popular Kaiju monsters, uh, monsters like Godzilla and Gamera. This is a variation that arises in which the giant monster that was once the, the destroyer must now defend us from a more horrible threat, usually either space aliens or a new giant monster that is meaner and more spiny. And I would argue that the emergence of Kaiju the Defender as a subgenre of uh, giant monster movies is part of a broader trend uh, that's not just in giant monster movies, but it's this trend where if you have a series of movies all about the same focal character, that character will almost always become more friendly and approachable over time, even if they began as a villain or an anti-hero. So Gamera goes from being a, a terrifying pyro turtle on a rampage to the friend of all children. Mm -hmm. uh, you can look to any Vin Diesel movie series, for examples of this. The Vin Diesel character will always become nicer as it goes on. Uh, even Freddy Krueger goes from being, in the first Nightmare on Elm Street movie, this grimy, disgusting child murderer to uh, later on more just kind of like a lethal puck in a sweater. Like he does still kill people, but he's more kind of a prankster and a jokester. Yeah, he becomes more of like a Pee Wee Herman kind of a character as opposed to just a, a nightmare monster from, uh, from, from your mind, that sort of thing. Right. So in the, the later sequels in these movies, you often get Kaiju the Defender. Uh, next, I would say, is the, the Pity the Kaiju movie. Uh, great example here is sort of the original King Kong. Like a dangerous but in many ways admirable and noble monster is kidnapped or imprisoned or otherwise exploited by greedy humans. And in the end, you, you have emotional sympathy for the creature and the way that it has been mistreated by humankind. Yeah, and, and there, obviously there are numerous subclassifications that we could point out here. Uh, but well, one that comes to mind uh, as well is essentially the, the wear kaiju option. So not an amazing colossal situation where just a human gets big and then does big stuff, but a situation where a protagonist transforms into a giant monster mm. uh, that is distinct from just a giant human. Uh, the 2016 film Colossal starring Anne Hathaway comes to mind. That has an, a fun twist on this concept. And there's also 1965's Frankenstein versus Baragon that involves something like this as well, with a small boy transforming into a giant Frankenstein's monster. Mm. I don't think I've seen either of those. I certainly haven't seen the uh, one with Anne Hathaway. Does Anne, is Anne Hathaway the one who transforms into a giant monster? Yes, she is. Ooh. Or it's a... Uh, so spoilers, if, if you if you haven't seen this, just skip like, you know, a few minutes ahead. But the basic concept, if memory serves, is that she uh, she has uh, spells where she uh, becomes the monster uh, or controls the monster with her impulses, but is not conscious of the fact. So it's not a physical transformation. Uh, it's, mm. it, but it's, it's something else. It's, it's, it's a very fun film. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a comedy, uh, but it has a giant monster in it. It has a, a number of wonderful actors in it. Uh, well worth checking out. That does sound interesting. I, I'll have to look that up. Uh, but okay. So where does Gorgo fit into the, the subgenres? I would say Gorgo has elements of the first Kaiju, the destroyer and elements of the third, the, the pity, the monster film, uh, less of the second, which makes sense because this is the first Gorgo movie. This is not like a later sequel. And usually they don't become defenders of, of people mm. or friend to all children until later on. Uh, so it has elements of both. 
I would say, especially in the first act, the monster really does seem scary and seem like a threat. Uh, but as as the film goes on, yeah, you, you really come to sympathize with the monster, uh, spoiler, monsters over the, I don't know, just, just like uh, gloating, egotistical naval commanders who think that launching, you know, some more bombs at them will finally solve the problem. Right, right. It's ultimately going to be a draw and you realize, well, we can't really oppose Gorgo anymore. We must um, uh, form an alliance with Gorgo. Uh, clearly, if they'd made more Gorgo movies, it would have been Gorgo protecting the uh, the British Isles from some other menace. Right. But Rob, you brought to my attention the fact that there was a Gorgo comic series that seems to have happened after the movie. So I, if I understand correctly, the character was created for the film, but then there were comics made in in the wake of that. And I haven't read these comics, but just judging by looking at some of the uh, the covers online, Gorgo does appear to go through the exact same like heel to face turn we see in these other monsters, because in the first issue, he's just, yeah, like, you know, looming over London and uh, posing some kind of threat. But by the last issue, it looks like he's the only thing that can save the world from communism. Yeah, yeah. These uh, these covers are definitely worth looking up. I was surprised because I, I think I'd run across the idea before that there was some sort of a comic book adaptation. And that alone's not surprising i was thinking oh it's a one-off you know they did a comic book adaptation of the movie but no it's like it's a whole run (laughs) with uh with gorgo fighting various threats including communism and giant squids too you know it's that sort of thing uh big furry monsters with uh, horns on their head uh cyclopses you name it yeah so for a brief survey issue number one uh, rob i've added these images to the outline so we can comment on them as we look. Issue number one is just Gorgo standing. There's London in the background because you see Big Ben. You see the tower and the clock. And then some guys on the ground with flamethrowers blasting up at Gorgo's hands. And Gorgo just looks done. He's He's got a, a kind of like grinning through the pain look on his face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I assume this one is basically an adaptation of the picture or, you know, an abbreviation of it anyway. Right. But then by issue number three, we see a cover that is some kind of mad scientist trying to harness Gorgo's power. Gorgo looks different now, by the way. He's kind of uh, he's got a different shape and he's kind of bubbly all over and a lighter shade of like yellow green. Uh, But he's standing there and he's sort of reeling back. Gorgo looks like it's a more defensive posture. And this mad scientist is poking at him with this shock ray. And the mad scientist is saying, I can control you with you at my command. I will rule the world. Yeah, like clearly Gorgo is a force of nature that is going to be potentially uh, exploited by bad actors in the human realm. And therefore, the, the, the real villains are the mad scientists. That's right. So that's three. By issue number five, we've got the uh, title uh, Gorgo Clashes with the Sea Beast, where he's just it's an it's a kaiju meat slam. Now he's just wrestling with another giant monster. This looks like some kind of octopus inspired type creature, though. I I have to say the illustration is funny because it looks like they're about to kiss, doesn't it? Like Gorgo's even sort of holding the back of the octopus's head like he's going to dip him for a kiss. Yeah, yeah. It says Gorgo clashes with the sea beast in the unforgettable The Day Manhattan Died, which raises all sorts of questions. Why is Gorgo going over to Manhattan? Is like is there a like a Gorgo sharing uh program or treaty between uh, the UK and the United States at this point? I'm not sure. 
<laughs> oh, the, you know, they do invoke NATO later in the uh, oh, in, that's in the movie. Yeah. Uh, and then it goes on. So, like, uh, I included issue number 10. There's more fighting that looks kind of like kissing. This is where Gorgo is fighting the Venusian Terror. It says, they came from an alien world bent on destroying Earth and its inhabitants. Could even the mighty Gorgo stop them? Don't miss the Venusian Terror. What is the Venusian Terror? Well, you see a couple of flying saucers in the background that almost kind of look like they have eyes, like they're kind of uh, mm-hmm. placid, smiley faces. But then the Venusian monster is a cyclops being with a long yellow snake tongue, one big eye, and one big horn on the top of his head. Yep, and he's licking Gorgo in the face. Uh, it, it really seems like maybe this is a big misunderstanding. Uh, <laughs> the, the the Venusian terror doesn't really want to hurt anyone. He he just wants a little uh, little snuggling, a little little face licking. That's it. Yeah, he is cute. Uh, and then, like we said, finally, by like the, the end of the series, we've got Gorgo and one of them. I don't know what's going on here. He's fighting a giant guy, just like a, a, a yeah. he, guy who kind of looks like Dracula, but he's Gorgo sized. Uh, I think mm-hmm. they must have blown him up with mad science somehow. He's fighting Gorgo. Uh, and then also Gorgo is fighting somebody called General Thung. And we see General Thung saying that he, uh, with uh, uh, together we will destroy all imperialistic nations. Uh, and Gorgo, I guess, is gonna gonna prevent that. I don't know. Yeah, Gorgo's politics are fully explored in this uh, this particular issue. I'm sure. Yeah, but all of that comes later. This movie is about, and this would be my my elevator pitch. It's the British Isles versus giant monster. That is exactly it. All right. Well, let's go ahead and have that trailer audio so everyone can hear some of the destruction that's coming their way. picture of our time has ever unleashed shocked spectacle of such scope and realism as up from the depths of prehistoric mystery rages Virgo. The headlines of the world blaze the fabulous story of this monster from another age, catapulted from some vast sub-ocean cavern by unprecedented volcanic action. And the headlines scream the story of the reckless skin divers who captured the monster and put it on exhibition. Stop! Pull out! Drop the net! What do you think you're doing? Hey, take it easy. I can't let him go back to the sea where he belongs. Why? Maybe to save their silly skins for you. Hurry, hurry, hurry to see Gorgo. But the headlines do not record the story of a little boy who had a curious sympathy and understanding for the fantastic creature. What strange secret does he know that scientists only suspect? You trying to say there may be a fully grown one of these things around somewhere? How big would a full grown one be? An approximate guess. The infant. The adult. That would make it nearly 200 feet tall. Wreaking terrible vengeance against the civilization that has captured its offspring. Towering over the cities of the world as millions flee its awesome terror. can stop it, defying the force of the army, the might of the Navy. Try number one, Tony. Ready to open fire, sir. Fire one. Even the fury of the jets. 
a crashing crescendo of sights never before beheld by human eyes and adventures never before experienced by any man or woman. Well, if you want to go out and watch Gorgo before proceeding with this episode, it is widely available in physical and digital formats and on multiple streaming platforms. You can even grab it on Blu-ray. And again, the film was also covered by Mystery Science Theater 3000 in a 1998 episode. And I think that's available in different formats as well. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices... Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. 
and of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's talk about the people behind this film, uh, starting at the top with the director, Eugene Laurie, born 1903, died 1991. Russian-born French art director and ultimately director. His production design work goes back to the early 1930s, but his first directorial credit was 1953's The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. This one, of course, has a, an, an, an excellent Ray Harryhausen lizard in it, a giant lizard monster that terrorizes the city and in one memorable scene uh, eats a cop. Is this one attacking New York or somewhere else? I think it's New York. Uh, this yeah. is one I've never seen in full, uh, but uh, you know, I've certainly seen the monster clips. Anytime you see a Harryhausen um, retrospective, you're going to see clips from this film for sure. And this this movie was was a hit. Seems to have cemented Laurie as a giant monster director, uh, and he followed this up with 1958's The Colossus of New York. This is about a giant robot body that has a dead boy's brain in it. Uh, I included a still for you here, Joe, of said robot. I have considered suggesting this for the show before. I, I think we may come around to it one day because it, from what I understand, it's a similar concept to Tammy and the T-Rex, except instead of a T-Rex body, it's a, it's a giant sort of colossus being. <laughs> uh, then there's also 1959's The Giant Behemoth. This has another giant dinosaur in it, uh, less memorable, not a Ray Har- Harryhausen creation. And uh, then he also did an episode of the 1959 TV series World of Giants. This was an incredible Shrinking Man-inspired show. Um, I couldn't find details on the specific episode he did and what kind of giant, a.k.a. normal-sized insect or what have you, might have been featured in that episode. Mm. Now, uh, Michael Weldon in his Psychotronic Movie Guides points out that that the success of 1953's Beast was actually an inspiration on 54's Godzilla. And I've read elsewhere that Godzilla was uh, was also inspired by the commercial success of a 1952 re-release of 1933's King Kong. So you can think mm. of those two films as two primary um, predecessors to Godzilla and therefore you know, the, the vast world of kaiju that we have uh, before us. Mm-hmm. So that's the director. A uh, couple of writers attached to this. There's Robert L. Richards, who lived 1909 through 1984, American writer of mostly Westerns, uh, another uh, one of these individuals uh, who lost uh, their Hollywood career due to the blacklist uh, during this time period. Hmm. Uh, Daniel James is the other writer, lived 1911 through 1988, also blacklisted from Hollywood for his political uh, views. He worked as an uncredited writer on The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, as well as The Giant Behemoth served as, and, he, and earlier in his career, he had served as assistant director on the 1940 Charlie Chaplin movie, The Great Dictator. All right, let's get into the cast. The towering lead man in this is Bill Travers, playing the character Joe Ryan. There's really sort of, there are really sort of two leads in this movie. There's, there's Sam and Joe, the characters, and yeah, one is Bill Travers and the other is William Sylvester, and I was thinking them as Bill Trav and Bill Sill. Well, obviously for the lead, and I mean, in, in terms of billing and in terms of height, 
and maybe that's how they decided on it. Uh, Big Bill Travers is your lead here. He lived 1922 through 1994. Yeah, I looked it up. I was like, how tall was this guy? Apparently 6'6". So that's, 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 a, that's a big guy by most standards. Uh, and, and it's clear in the film. You know, this is this guy's, he's almost as tall as Gorgo, basically. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> British leading man and animal rights activist who mostly worked in mainstream dramas, with this being, I believe, his only sci-fi or horror film. Um, everything else is more, you know, traditional real world sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. His most famous and ultimately most influential film was 1966's Born Free. This was an adaptation of George and Joy Adamson's book about their experiences raising a lion cub in Kenya. Uh, and it led to a kind of spiritual follow-up with the same stars called Ring of Bright Water in 1969. Bill Travers' wife, Virginia McKenna, born 1931, was his, was his co-star in both of those pictures. And their experience with the, with the films, especially the first one, Born Free, um, this opened, apparently opened up their eyes to various challenges concerning captive wild animals in the world, and they created the Born Free Foundation in 1984, which is still very active. It works to, quote, ensure that all wild animals, whether living in captivity or in the wild, are treated with compassion and respect and are able to live their lives according to their needs. And you can learn more about that organization at bornfree.org.uk. That's interesting, given the themes of Gorgo. Uh, yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think I heard you mention Gorgo as a cited inspiration for uh, <laughs> for for this activism. But Gorgo also has themes of uh, of uh, animal rights in captivity. I mean, maybe it was there in the background, and maybe Gorgo is what pushed it over the edge. <laughs> uh, but uh, but no, they never mentioned Gorgo. We're talking. It's it's not the the Gorgo Foundation. It's the Born Free Foundation. Now, I say this not to tarnish his acting or his uh, activism by association, but there's kind of an elephant in the room with this guy, which I know of being brought up multiple times independently when uh, talking about this movie uh, with people, which is that in some shots, he kind of looks like Steven Seagal here. Uh, it helps that he's tall. Sometimes at like certain angles, he's he makes a kind of Steven Seagal face. And there's also a, a kind of energy that... Uh, I, I don't know if this exactly makes sense, Rob, but like the fact that he doesn't take off his captain's hat, even when they come on board land, that that kind of has a Seagal thing, too. OK. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, now, you mentioned that William Sylvester uh, plays the other main character, the character Sam Slade. Um, and this is a guy that I think a lot of people will recognize. He was uh, he lived 1922 through 1995. His most recognizable role is that of Dr. Haywood R. Floyd in Stanley Kubrick's 1968 masterpiece, 2001, A Space Odyssey. So he is the character in 2001 who uh, we see him when we first transition uh, from the prologue into the future. He's like taking a, a shuttle to the moon and then arrives there to investigate the uh, the anomaly found buried on the moon. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So it's you see him early in the film and he is, uh, well, I mean, not too early because early enough you're only seeing uh, uh, hominids and, um, and, uh, and, and tapers and so forth. But, uh, yeah, one of the, the, the first modern humans you encounter. And I don't know about anyone else, but like watching this film and recognizing him from 2001, it kind of added a little extra class to this picture, mm-hmm. you know, like, like 2001 can't help, but where it would rub off on any other picture. You see some of the various actors from that film in. Though, of course, Gorgo did come first, so you could look at it as Bill Sill bringing the, that class of Gorgo into the production of 2001. 
Certainly. You certainly could. But, you know, it wasn't all like generational, all-time best sci-fi films for William Sylvester. Other folks might recognize him from the TV series Gemini Man and the TV movie from 76 uh, as well, Riding with Death. This was pieced together from, I think, like a couple of episodes of Gemini Man and was Mm. featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000. Oh, yeah. Uh, I have vague memories of that one. His other credits include 1964's Devil Doll, 65's Devils of Darkness, and he also pops up in 1978's Heaven Can Wait. Uh, You know, there's only so much that is demanded of the actors in Gorgo, but I think uh, I would say William Sylvester stands out in this movie as doing doing maybe the most with his role of anyone. Yeah. And he gets to smoke a lot. (laughs) He gets to smoke a lot. (laughs) He's the one who we first see really seeming to to feel bad about what's happening to Gorgo, apart from mm-hmm. uh, a, a child actor who we'll talk about in a bit. All right. A couple other characters of note. We have uh, Professor Hendricks, played by Joseph O'Connor, who lived 1910 through 2001, Irish actor and playwright with extensive Shakespearean stage credits. His films include 1964's The Gorgon, so he's in both Gorgo and The Gorgon. This is the Terrence Fisher Hammer film starring both uh, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Hmm. He was in 1969's Anne of the Thousand Days, 98's Elizabeth, 1999's The Messenger. And I this was this is pretty cool, too. He served as the narrator in the voice of the Urskex in 1982's The Dark Crystal. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that voice you hear at the end, that's Joseph O'Connor. I had no idea. All right. So that's Professor Hendricks. And then there's this character, Dorkin. Oh, what a skis. Yeah. Dorkin is played by Martin Benson, who lived 1918 through 2010. English character actor whose credits include 1956's The King and I, 63's Cleopatra, 64's A Shot in the Dark, 69's Goldfinger. He plays one of the mobsters uh, that the the villain in that is, uh, is involved in his scheme to radiate a bunch of gold. I believe uh, he is the guy who objects to Goldfinger's plan and they're like, oh, oh, you know, that's fine. You don't have to be part of this. So they go put him in a car and then they put the car in a trash compactor. (laughs) Classic. All right. Then you got 76 is The Omen, 77's Jesus of Nazareth and 1999's Angela's Ashes. So uh, I don't think he was ever he was very much a character actor, often like a little further down in the listings, but um, had major roles in a number of big pictures. Dorkin is the the greedy, unscrupulous uh, circus uh, proprietor in this film who who exploits Gorgo for profit. And I think Benson does a great job with this role. He's like he's out carnival barking uh, about how, you know, oh, uh, we the, the Irish government may soon put a stop to what we're doing to Gorgo. So uh, come and get your tickets now while there's still a chance. <laughs> there's a window for Gorgo exploitation. Yeah. All right. Uh, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here, but it is worth noting that in small, uncredited roles, we also have future UFO lead Ed Bishop, uh, who lived 32 through 2005. And then we also have Nigel Green, John Wood, Fred Wood. Um, all three would later on go, would go on to be bigger name actors there and there. Uh, I wasn't able to spot most of them. I think I spotted one or both of the Woods. And then as far as the monsters go, there's a stuntman by the name of Dave Wilding inside the monster suit. I couldn't find out much about him, but I do like to acknowledge the person wearing the monster suit whenever possible. All right. Now, behind the scenes, you actually have a number of uh, notable names here. Uh, We'll try not to spend too much time on them here, but 
the cinematographer for this was Freddie Young, who lived 1902 through 1998. British cinematographer, best known for his Oscar-winning work on David Lean's films Lawrence of Arabia from 62, wow. Dr. Zhivago from 65, and Ryan's Daughter from 1970. So this is right before Lawrence of Arabia. Wow. He also worked on 67's You Only Live Twice, 71's Nicholas and Alexandra, and 1972's The Asphyx. Wow, Freddie got around. Yeah, big name, big name. Yeah. Uh, another one, uh, Elliot Scott was the art director on this. He lived 1915 through 1993. Uh, he'd worked previously on 1958's Tom Thumb, which was a, kind of a big special effects feature uh, of the time period, I believe. Uh, he went on to work as art director on such films as 64's Children of the Damned, 1970's No Blade of, of Grass, and he served as production designer on a ton of big films, uh, 1980's uh, the Water in the Woods, 81's Dragon Slayer, 83's The Pirates of Penzance, 84's Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, 86's Labyrinth, 88's Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and 1989's Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Oh, again, a lot of high-profile work. Wow. Yeah. Then we have Tom Howard, special photographic effects, lived 1910 through 1985. He was a visual ex effects expert who worked on a number of award-winning and legendary special effects film, including uh, Tom Thumb. Uh, 1963's The Haunting, and 1968's 2001 A Space Odyssey. As we'll discuss, there are a lot of monster suit effects in this, a lot of like miniature set effects, but there's also a fair amount of uh, chroma key replacement stuff, you know, like blue-green um, screen type uh, effects. I'm mm -hmm. thinking especially early on in the film when uh, when you know, we have our two main characters out on the water about to, to go scuba diving. Uh, like clearly they did some combination of on location and set with the, uh, the ocean thrown in the background. Mm -hmm. And then finally, the score is by, and uh, I may not be pronouncing this, this correctly, Angelo Francesco Lavagnino who lived 1909 through 1987, an Italian composer whose other scores include 1955's Lost Continent and a whole slew of spaghetti westerns and sword and sandal epics. Uh, his score for Lost Continent was a winner at the Cannes Film Festival. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a fine, sweeping orchestral score here. Uh, it fits the, the grandeur that is Gorgo, uh, but that's about all I can say for it. Yeah, well, it, sometimes it's funny because clearly something it's trying to do, especially at the beginning, is blend this thundering, you know, uh, suite of monster horns with the, the lilting Irish folk melodies. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd say it does that fairly successfully, though it's a kind of amusing thing to hear. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. 
Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure... It kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I guess we're transitioning to the the plot now, and uh, the movie opens with that score uh, that that combines like the you know the the dramatic monster music with the Irish uh, sounding folk melody, and that is playing while we see the titles, and the title uh, is there are such like block letters uh, in the title here. I love the 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 heaviness of it like you can imagine the 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 teams that built the pyramids putting together the (laughs) gorgo title that's right yeah when they drop the title gorgo here it is like a thousand feet tall it's like a biblical epic font uh it it looks like it should be comically monty python style crushing something Uh, and then I was, it, it was, this alone was amazing, but then they kept, kept using it like smaller, of course, but they kept using it for the rest of the credits. And I loved it. Strong choice. So the action begins with a steamship out on the sea and we see uh, the men of the crew all looking out over the sea with concern. Something is troubling them. And then we see what they're looking at. Far out in the distance, there is a patch of ocean that appears to be at a rolling boil. It is this giant, white, frothy mass swirling around ominously. 
And soon a diver in scuba gear comes up uh, to the ladder uh, on the side of the ship from the water. And from the diver, we learn that these are salvage operators. And while they're certainly worried about the boiling ocean, there is money to be made. A shipwreck worth a fortune is down below. So the dive continues until disaster strikes. The boiling region of the ocean suddenly erupts. Uh, something comes out of it. looks kind of like a volcanic mountaintop poking up out of the water. And the ship is rocked by brutal waves. It nearly turns over. We see cargo from the deck being washed overboard, sailors fighting to keep the vessel afloat. And the boat is nearly destroyed. Uh, and then we cut to the next morning. The violence has subsided, but the ship is very damaged. Its engine has taken on water. We see this giant propeller making a weak effort to spin. And here, uh, assessing the problem, we meet our two main characters. Actually, I guess we met them before, but we sort of get to know them. So there is uh, Captain Joe Ryan, played by Bill Travers. And then there is the first mate, Sam Slade, played by William Sylvester. Now, honestly, the the first time I watched this, though they don't look the same, I, I couldn't tell much of a difference between these two guys. I didn't really uh, separate them in my mind. They were just like the two salvage guys. Uh, Captain Joe is the taller guy. He's the guy wearing the captain's hat. Um, but uh, but on, on rewatch, I, I could see more of the differences between their characters. Yeah, this film doesn't set them up as being like uh, antagonistic to each other like they clearly have a great working relationship and therefore they line up on a lot of things. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, another film might have gone in a different direction where, you know, one of them's good, one of them's bad. You know, one of them uh, wants to cut corners and the other one is by the book. And uh, it's not really what we have here. Certainly not in the beginning. They do have more differences later on in the film. Yeah, because you throw a giant monster into a relationship, even a working relationship, and it changes everything. That's right. <laughs> so uh, Sam and Joe figured that the boat is going to take three or four days to repair. And they're out of fresh water, so they need to go ashore at the nearest port, which is on a small island. Uh, where, and they're, they're off the coast of Ireland, by the way. But it's a small island called Nara. And so our salvage buddies take a dinghy into the port. And along the way, we see some kind of strange creatures that appear to be dead floating in the water. Uh, they're like weird I mean, we, we see these models at one point, uh, Bill Travers like picks one up out of the water and holds it up for us to see. And they're like these rubber fish that I think have legs and they have things poking out of their eyes. Yeah. Big rubber monster fish everywhere. Uh, like weird enough looking that you would have, it seems like it would have been more alarming, but I guess yeah. Yeah, they're just like, well, these are strange. Not familiar with this species. Yeah. Bill Trav says, uh, never seen anything like that before. And then just throws it back. Yeah, they pick one up, look at it, throw it back in. But I don't know, maybe when you're a salvage operator, you are just constantly seeing things like, oh, that's a weird thing from the ocean. Don't know what that is. Yeah, cryptozoology hadn't been invented yet, so you couldn't like take a picture <laughs> of it and claim that it's uh, you know some sort of fantastic creature. They're just like, well, that's expected, really. Uh, it's a chupacabra. It's got to be. So, yeah, they, they determined that the whole ocean floor must have been torn up by uh, the, what appeared to be a volcanic eruption, the thing that damaged their boat. But they dock, they meet some local fishermen who are not very friendly and mostly don't speak English. They just kind of cuss them out in, in Gaelic. And uh, eventually they come to a house where they meet a little boy who will become another one of the main characters of this movie. The boy is Sean. 
He is introduced as an orphan boy who assists the harbormaster, McCartan. And you know what? I, I give credit to this child actor. He does a much better job than you might expect with, with his role. But also, they have him dressed up in some funny clothes. Uh, when we were watching it, Rachel was observing that, like, they just have Sean in these gigantic clothes. Like, he's wearing this huge sweater tucked into huge pants. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but yeah, he does become important. He's an important character, not just a one-off. And uh, as, as we kind of alluded to earlier, yeah, this whole first act has kind of a full car vibe to it. Uh, a solid, mysterious atmosphere is rolled out. And uh, I'd say they also venture into sort of like soft Lovecraftian othering of the Irish here uh, with this whole like, oh, they, they can't understand them. There's something creepy going on here in this, uh, this Irish village, which uh, I mean— as we'll find out, nothing really that creepy is going on, uh, but they, they kind of create this uh, this air of mystery. Well, yeah, the way they're first introduced, you might expect that the like all the people on the island are part of a cult that worships Gorgo or something. That's not yeah. the case. They're no. like they're just as baffled and terrified by by Gorgo as anybody else, it seems. Yeah. But anyway, so Sean invites our heroes into the Harbormaster's cabin, and he informs them that McCartan is not, the, the Harbormaster McCartan is not actually a local. Uh, Sean says instead, a city man he is, a government man, calls himself an archaeologist. So I was a little confused by this. McCartan is simultaneously the Harbormaster and a working archaeologist. Yeah, I feel like a lot of roles were combined into one. <laughs> this is originally just going to be the whole movie is uh, tinkering around in this uh, this small village. That's a good point. This in an earlier draft, I wonder if this was two different characters that were combined into one. Yeah, could have been. Anyway, Sean says he works for McCartan, quote, cleaning up the things he finds. And Sean asks if they want to see these things that he cleans up for McCartan. Turns out McCartan is he's got like a back room where he is piling up a secret stash of priceless Viking artifacts left over from a great sea battle a thousand years ago when the Irish drove off the Vikings and sank their ships. And Sean says that apparently fighting in the Irish's corner was a sea spirit called Ogre. And he points up to a figure of like a dragon head that I guess is supposed to be a representation of Ogre. It's a nice shot. I mean, in a way, it kind of reminds me of the early scenes in The Exorcist where we haven't seen anything demonic yet. And we see that statue of Pazuzu mm -hmm. uh, and it's, you know, it's ominous and, and really one of the creepier moments of a film that... Uh, you know, in its later stages, is less concerned with being subtly creepy and more in your face. Yeah, the the dogs are fighting in the rubbish heap while while he's looking at the statue. Yeah, yeah, and in a similar way, this is a movie that is going to be very in your face later on. Uh, but at this point, we haven't seen the monster, and we just have this nice subtle idea. Uh, you know, the sort of the the mythic potency of the idea. So just then in the artifact room, they are interrupted by McCartan, the city man. McCartan is borderline hostile from the get-go. He seems to be wanting to protect his stash of Viking stuff. And he says, by orders of the local authorities, no ship is allowed to put into port at Nara for more than 24 hours without a permit. Uh, so Joe and Sam plead for help. After all, he's like, you know, the ocean boiled, something wrecked our engine. But McCartan will not budge on this. He's like, I don't make the rules. Uh, it's never established who does make the rules, but uh, they, they cannot come into port except to get some water and leave. So on the way back to their ship, 
Sam and Joe run into some local boats who at first cuss them out in Gaelic and then report that they are waiting for some divers to come up. And when one of the divers does turn up, he is dead. So they pull him on board the boat and Sam looks at the dead diver and concludes that he died of fright. And I always wonder how you can tell that in movies just by looking at people. Yeah, yeah, without like a Star Trek uh, medical scanner device. Uh, usually, sometimes there's a that they make it abundantly clear, like suddenly the hair has turned white, or there are like severe distortions, uh, a la the ring. Oh, uh, yeah. But for the most part, in films like this, it's like oh, well, touch him on the neck, uh, he's dead, Jim. Uh, so, so we get a diving scene next. Uh, Sam and Joe are on the case. They're trying to figure out. Um what are they trying to figure out? I don't know. They go down to investigate, I think, what could have scared the diver that, that killed him. And yeah, they also are just suspicious. They, they're suspicious of this yeah. archaeologist. They're like, something is up, and we want to find out what is up and what he's up to, and that's why they're going freelance here. That's right. So they just, they, they like scoop it down. And I really like in this scene that they just kind of see Gorgo. <laughs> He's just yeah. down there swim, swimming around. The water is murky, so you don't get a great look at him yet. But you just see this like lizard rat swimming through the water. And they come back up. They're sitting there in their scuba gear smoking cigarettes. And Joe says, what did you see, Sam? And Sam says, I don't know. But whatever it was, I never want to see it again. <laughs> Unfortunately, you will in the next scene. So later on the salvage ship, they're, they're bringing aboard barrels. I think this is the, the fresh water they asked for. And Sean, the child, shows up on the boat. He says that McCartan wants to see them. Uh, and then he also says that the permit is a heathen lie. I didn't know exactly what this meant. Yeah, but Sean is ready to sell out his village to any outsider salvage crew that is just halfway nice to him. Yeah, there's nothing so far to establish that Joe and Sam are nice people. Like, they, they're... No, like everybody's in the business of finding stuff lost on the seafloor and, and stealing it for your own purposes. Yeah. <laughs> but it's implied that, that these guys are okay. Uh, whereas the archeologist is clearly up to no good. He's a city man. Yeah. Yeah. Are Sam and Joe not city men? What makes one a city man? I guess they're, they're, they're seamen. They're Navy <laughs> I, men, right? Okay. Yeah. They're men of the salt. Yeah. Of the yeah. salt and the wind. Um, okay. So, the next thing that happens is the the atmosphere gets pretty cool. Like the locals appear to be preparing for something weird. I would say this scene is like a cross between Jaws and the Wicker Man. We see locals loading into boats, rowboats with flaming torches and harpoons. And one harpooner spies something in the water and then lets his dart fly. And then we see Gorgo. We see this head, this like rat lizard type head pop up out of the water with red eyes with a uh, with a harpoon, I think, stuck in his eye. And Sean informs us that this is Ogre. This is the sea spirit. So uh, then we get kind of a battle scene that is Ogre versus the boat posse. And then after this, Ogre comes on shore and attacks the harbor. He's like stomping around, smashing things. And McCartan seems to be in command of the locals. He's like uh, he's like commanding a group of men with rifles who get into formation and shoot at Ogre. But uh, does it do anything? Of course not. How did they control the monster in ancient times? I feel like like ultimately yeah. the, the 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 alluded to backstory is far more fascinating than anything we get into later on in the film. Like, what was that encounter like between the Irish and their monster and the Viking invaders? Like, I, I, I want to see that prequel. Yeah, we, we never really learn any more about that, do we? Yeah. 
Maybe they control the monster with religion. That's that would that would make sense. That would be interesting. Uh, but I do like a lot of the way the scene looks like there are some shots of, uh, you know, from a distance of the monster, uh, the monster sort of walking through the harbor. And then you see all the people running around with their fires and torches t- trying mm-hmm. to stand off against him. It is a it, it's actually a surprisingly dark and cool looking scene. Yeah, I agree. But, of course, the locals are completely ineffective at repelling the creature. Their harpoons and bullets do nothing. But the outsiders, Sam and Joe, they have an idea. They have the idea of throwing sticks at Gorgo. Uh, Technically, they throw flaming torches at uh, Gorgo or Ogre, whatever the creature is called at this point. Uh, I can't remember what we specified so so far. But to be clear, nobody in the movie has said the word Gorgo yet. That name will come later. So they throw some torches. Gorgo gets the torches stuck in his teeth. Then uh, he squeals, walks backwards into the water, almost as if moving in reverse. I think this actually is a reverse shot and then sinks back into the waves. So they drove him away. It worked. Right. Uh, And after the attack, the locals are mad at McCartan. And I wasn't sure why. Like, is Gorgo his fault? Don't see any reason to think so. No, I mean, I mean, we know the viewer knows that this probably has something to do with the volcanic activity. Yeah. And but they're thinking, oh, it's because he's stealing all that Viking gold. But that I mean, did it, unless you're going to make some sort of crazy uh, uh, hypothesis in which the theft of Viking gold from the seafloor caused some sort of volcanic reaction. There's no indication of that in the film or and also from what I can tell, no indication that Gorgo cares about the Viking artifacts or the gold. Anyway, so the locals are mad at McCartan. They start saying, hey, we want to leave with uh, with Sam and Joe on their salvage ship when it's repaired. But uh, McCartan tries to talk them out of that. And eventually Sam and Joe retreat with McCartan into his harbor master's shack to discuss a deal. They know that McCartan is secretly trying to protect the Viking treasure, which I guess he plans to keep for himself. He reveals that he has a safe full of what look like holy grails. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Different holy grail prototypes in there. Uh, you know, he's got like, I don't know, I can see at least 15 holy grails in there. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sam and Joe offer a trade. They say uh, if McCartan pays them off in some of the Viking gold, they will get rid of the monster for him. So they make a deal. Uh, so they leave. But then Sean, the kid, follows them. And uh, he does not like the idea of them catching Ogre. He, he catches up to them and he says, uh, uh, it's a bad thing you're doing, a terrible bad thing, Mr. Ryan. And then Joe Ryan kneels next to the kid. He says, why don't you call me Joe? And Sean says, OK, Joe. And Joe says, OK, Sean. End of conversation. <laughs> <laughs> So next time a child accuses you of doing evil, just remember, get on a first name basis. It'll totally distract them. But I love the setup here. Like we're really uh, cooking with gas now. The idea is that these guys are going to catch the monster uh, in order to to make that sweet Viking gold. Uh, And so this is the challenge ahead of them. There's no indication that they actually have the ability to do this, but they're going to set out and try to do it anyway. That's right. Well, at first they're like, uh, how would you even kill a creature like that? Maybe you'd use dynamite or something. But then they consider, actually, what is a creature like that worth alive? Maybe it's Mm. worth more alive. So from here, we move on to the bathysphere scene, Uh, though this bathysphere is not a sphere. It is not spherical. It's sort of the bathycylinder. 
And uh, Joe gets into this metal contraption with some portholes on it that looks incredibly small inside. And uh, it, I don't know, this this is a, a cool scene concept, though it doesn't look as amazing as I think it could have. Weldon points out that this section of the film was, is pretty much a direct remake of a scene in The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. And uh, so I had to look it up because, again, I've only really seen the monster sequences from that movie. And indeed, there's another bathysphere sec- uh, segment that you can watch. So they, they, they basically were like, well, that worked last time. Well, let's do it again. Uh, but, yeah, to your point, I think the, it, it works better in the mind than it does on, on screen, at, at least by modern standards. I don't know. Maybe this, this was a lot more impressive at the time. Also, the bathysphere in this movie is like a TARDIS in that it is much bigger on the inside than on the outside. We see uh, Joe Ryan inside there, and I don't know, it's, it's quite roomy, actually, on the inside. Though. Yeah, especially considering how big this actor is. <laughs> yeah, he has, he has so much room. We, if, if you're curious about all of this, we did some episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind back in the day about the bathysphere and about the, the construction of it, and the, the size of it, and and some of the you know, the amazing uh, observations that were made with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's an amazing story, and I can totally understand wanting to capture that in the film. And I guess to a certain extent they do. Like, I, I like the idea of 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 the, the small capsule being lowered into this vast, unexplored world, like a va- world as vast and, and as large-scale as your giant monsters. Um uh, though the, being very much an outsider in it, in this uh, vulnerable little capsule. Well, I mean, the thing to remember about the bathysphere is that it has no propulsion of its own. So it's just yeah. dangling by this cable. So if it were to somehow drop, that that's it. You're not coming back up. Yeah. But anyway, so they send uh, Joe down there and they make contact. There's a Gorgo attack. Uh, Gorgo attacks the bathysphere. And, ooh, you hear these like tin can crunching sounds and you see water spraying on the inside. But there is not a catastrophic implosion. Joe is not killed. Instead, the ship successfully traps Gorgo in a net. It's kind of it's kind of a, um, a lackluster finish to that, though, because it's like the bathysphere. Oh, high technology. And then they just use a net. Just yeah. Net. Yeah, yeah. And then we get some news reports. And I I can't remember what we've said about this already, but from here on out, the movie will become highly reliant on news reports for both plot exposition and for exploration of themes. Yeah. Uh, we're just going to get reporters telling us what's going on and what it means over and over. Yeah, it basically goes all uh, Santa Claus Conquers the Martians for a bit here, where yeah. it's uh, yeah, a bunch of newscasts. Expert interviews and, of course, our, our all-time favorite stock footage. So much stock footage, though, at least this time around, it's British military stock footage, which has, you know, a different texture to it compared to the like 1950s and 60s U.S. military stock footage that you see in so many films of that era. Yeah, we, we, we haven't gotten exactly to the point where stock footage becomes super prevalent yet. That'll come a little later oh, in the in, into coming. the second act right now we're at the at the like peak newscaster stuff mm-hmm. so we get a newscast where uh the, this guy at a desk explains what's happening he says the headlines of the entire world are being monopolized by the news of the capture of a fantastic monster seemingly of prehistoric origin off the coast of ireland puzzled scientists are already speculating that the monster may have been released from some vast suboceanic cavern far beneath Earth's crust by unprecedented volcanic eruptions which occurred in the area last week. 
Uh, and then meanwhile, we also get this other guy who, like, we cut to a different newscaster who says, some scientific authorities are suggesting that the whole thing is merely an elaborate Irish hoax. <laughs> 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 Nevertheless, the Irish government are sending two of their top paleontologists to claim the creature for Ireland, if it does exist. Hmm. I also have to throw in here that, um, you know, most, I think all organisms are of prehistoric origin, if you want to be technical <laughs> about it. So I don't really know what that means. What do they mean of prehistoric origin? I know, I know what they're getting at, but I'm just not sure it makes sense. You know, we've watched a lot of movies with plot exposition via uh, like a news desk segment. And I feel like at some point we should go back and rank the the newscaster segments. I'm going to say these guys, they're no dick cutting. No. <laughs> what, what was he? That was he was in um, uh, Creature with the Atom Brain, right? He was. Yes. Yeah. He's the Walter Cronkite of monster attacks. Always, always <laughs> trust dick cutting. Uh, let's see here. Uh, oh yeah. Then we get the transport segment. So we see Gorgo on the salvage ship. He's like tied up in ropes and nets. He's being taken somewhere. Uh, the scientists uh, from Dublin who were mentioned in the, the news report, they arrive on the boat and they say this animal is of enormous scientific value. You must take it to Dublin immediately and its skin must be kept wet. Uh, but then when the scientists are out of earshot, Sam and Joe, it, one of them pulls out like a letter they got i think mm -hmm. which is a better offer uh it is from dorkin's circus in london and they say that dorkin is offering them thirty thousand against 50 percent of the gross uh so are, are these hardened mercenaries going to turn gorgo over to the clutches of science for a pittance of compensation hell no no they're going to go they're going <laughs> to send him to the circus of dorkin <laughs> So they set the course for London. I think the scientists from Dublin are still on the ship as the <laughs> ship is like departing, like going in the other direction to to take the monster to to London. Uh, so I, I assume they're protesting the entire time. <laughs> oh, also Sean comes along on the ship, uh, and yeah. I don't know why, but he's on the ship now. I think he he has now just become the ward of Sam and Joe. And uh, Sean comes to, oh, he comes out in the middle of the night and talks to Gorgo. He's like, I came to let you go back to the sea and tries to release him. But then Joe comes out and gets mad at Sean and he says, you little nuthead, I have yeah. a gutten notion to toss you over the side. But we, we get a, a little bit of the, the natural affinity uh, that a young child has for a giant monster. You know, this is, of course, something we, we see, uh, especially in the Gamera movies. Gamera is a friend to children. Yeah, it's never established that Gorgo is a friend to all children, but Sean is like naturally drawn to Gorgo. There are scenes later where Gorgo, uh, spoiler, Gorgo's mother is destroying London and Sean, while all the crowds are running away, Sean runs toward. Kids get kaiju. They understand that's part of the connection. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. 
brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Uh, So anyway, Joe and Sam, they put armed guards on Gorgo. They say, uh, if that thing moves, start shooting. But why would they do that? Isn't like this thing being alive their meal ticket? (laughs) Uh, So Gorgo, I think, kills a guard in the middle of the night. Uh, And they also mention that Gorgo is dripping some kind of phosphorescent ooze into the water as they travel. That won't come back later. Yeah. <laughs> um, they arrive in London and we get a bunch of shots of London and some things that are interesting. Rob, I included one screenshot for you to look at here because what we're looking at is like in the background, a real shot of the Thames with like the Tower Bridge in the background. But then in the foreground, there is a it's supposed to be a tent, like a circus tent that says Gorgo over the top of it. So now we're actually seeing the name. And then there are painted cutouts of people in front of the circus tent. So they're not actors. They're like stands of people, but it cuts away pretty quickly. So if you weren't able to pause, you might think they were really standing there. Yeah. I get just a quick map painting here. Snuck yeah. in there. Interesting. 
Uh, so there's some conflict here. Uh, when they arrive in London, the scientists from Dublin are mad that Sam and Joe have decided to sell the animal to Dorkin instead of handing it over for research. And they point out that it may be carrying unknown diseases or parasites. It hasn't been studied yet, but Dorkin has got that sweet cash for them. And Dorkin also makes assurances to the scientists. He's like, don't worry, you know, we'll we'll be giving you every opportunity to study the creature while it is held in a concrete pit for the gawking crowds. I'm selling tickets to. <laughs> and Dorkin is a real like pencil mustache bow tie wearing money freak. Yeah, yeah, it's very clear that uh that, that he is a villain in this picture. Um we're not given a lot of uh reason to sympathize with this case. Oh, and then we get uh the the Gorgo in chains parade through London. I thought this scene mm-hmm. was amazing. So there is like this parade of trucks or lorries, I guess, uh, that say Dorkin Circus and say Gorgo on them. And one of them is like a flatbed truck that has Gorgo on the trailer. (laughs) And he's like wrapped in a big tarp that says Gorgo covered in chains. And it feels like it's like Titus Andronicus, like marching into Rome with the Queen of the Goths in a cage. But it's all for Dorkin. And uh, and I guess it was Dorkin's idea to call the creature Gorgo because it's written on all of his circus stuff. Well, he knows you got to brand it, uh, so that makes sense. And yeah, th- this this whole sequence is pretty great because it's 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 weird, uh, and also you get lots of period shots of London. Yeah. Uh, I really enjoy just seeing uh, all of the, like the the neon and the signage and so forth. So this is this is a lot of fun. Yeah, and these are real location shots. So they actually must have like driven a truck with a thing that said Gorgo on it in front of Buckingham Palace and stuff like that. <laughs> um, and the, uh, the we get another newscast uh, that's saying, we bring you the, uh, in our most unusual telecast to date, we bring you the arrival of Gorgo. This creature, which should have been extinct 10 million years ago, is truly an awesome sight as it is transported through the streets of modern London on its way to Battersea Park. And there's a big sign for Gordon's gin in the background. So there's just ads all over the place. Uh, and the newscast goes on. Of course, Londoners are notoriously skeptical and a good many we've spoken to still think to, seem to think it's some kind of circus stunt. But the animal is real. Take my word for it. And uh, and they go on to uh, to say, well, the streets have been cleared, but, you know, rest assured there is no danger. The animal has been been given a large dose of tranquilizer and actually being so close to this thing, I could do with a large dose of tranquilizer myself. But jokes aside, the animal has killed a number of persons already. Oh, and finally, this is also the newscast where when the guy is saying, oh, we've arrived at Battersea Park where Gorgo, as he is called, we don't know why, will be exhibited to the public. Uh, And Gorgo is um, like you can just straight up see Gorgo on the back of the truck like his eyes are open and they're glowing red, but he's all tied down. And Gorgo in, in captivity like this does look very pitiable, like they they achieve in tugging on the heartstrings like i'm already feeling bad for gorgo and they haven't even really gotten to the part where you're supposed to be feel super bad for him yet you know i can't help but feel as as cool as these scenes are dorkin's kind of giving it away here like everyone gets a free peek at gorgo uh, and then he's going to sell tickets to have gorgo do more than just be present uh i don't know that's a good point. Yeah. Dorkin, you would think he'd be keeping more of a lid on it or maybe just trying to give people a t- the tiniest tease so that they will have to come pay for a ticket. But no, like you can see you can see Gorgo's face on the truck. Because we know from King Kong that like a, a ticketed 
King Kong presentation consists of King Kong chained on stage, and there's not much to it. <laughs> yeah. uh, I remember the, um, the, 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 the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror has uh, some jokes kind of alluding to this fact that, like, like what was the rest of the show going to consist of? You just sit there looking at King Kong? Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, what, what's the Gorgo show going to consist of? Is there an opening act? Do you have, is there a, is there some sort of a, a finale you're working towards? Is he going to do any tricks or is he just going to be tied up more or less like he is uh, in this whole sequence? Yeah, he was supposed to read Gorgo then puppet show. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> um, but so, oh, and we see. So, like, for some reason, Sam and Joe are still involved in they don't just like hand Gorgo off to Dorkin at the port and then take their money and go. They're like they seem to be Gorgo's uh, full time caretakers now. Yeah. Despite having no qualifications, no qualifications for this at all. Right. They're they're salvage divers. What? Yeah. What do they what do they know about Gorgo? Uh, But uh, Joe Joe Ryan still has his captain's hat on, by the way. Uh, but there's like a, a Dorkin press conference. Uh, and this is the part where one of the reporters is like, you know, is it true that you stole this from the Irish government? And Dorkin <laughs> is like, yes, yeah, so they may take it back soon. So you've got to get your tickets to see Gorgo today while it's yeah. still here. Um, so, yeah, like we said, uh, Joe and Sam, they're still involved in handling Gorgo. And uh, during transport, they're trying to put it in its enclosure. And Gorgo is awakened from his tranquilizer slumber by camera flashes of irresponsible reporters. Hmm, that seems familiar. Uh, mm-hmm. Was that in King Kong? I think maybe it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is a brief Gorgo rampage at the circus where he is eventually driven back. Uh, he's driven into his concrete pit by men with flamethrowers. Uh, there seems to be a, a theme that fire is Gorgo's weakness, but uh, Gorgo kills some people with his tail on the way back to his concrete pit, in ter- uh, including a friend of Joe and Sam's named Mike. And uh, Sam seems more disturbed by this than Joe does. But eventually they get Gorgo locked away, and then we're just treated to some shots of, like, London having Gorgo fever. So there are double decker <laughs> buses that all say Gorgo on the side of them. We yep. see the, uh, I guess it's Pic- Piccadilly Circus, maybe, or, you know, some like streets of London where there are just Gorgo signs all over the place next to big posters for, um, for Schweppes and, and Gordon's Gin and stuff. We see fireworks for Gorgo. There's cotton candy and rides at the circus. And uh, Dorkin is out, like, barking in front of the the circus entrance, saying, everyone in the world is talking about Gorgo, but only you can see him. Only five shillings, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, And they're, you know, they're selling ice cream and stuff. And we see all of the the British uh, circus goers standing at the edge of this concrete pit where Gorgo is in chains, standing in, like, a puddle of water. They're all eating cotton candy and bananas and gawking at this creature and just poor Gorgo. Yeah, yeah, we we you feel a lot of sympathy for the monster at this point because yeah, he's just he's in this pit and people are gawking at him and, uh, and he does not belong here. Uh, Gorgo was born free. Exactly, and he's also he's supposed to be in the sea. This is a point that Sean makes multiple times. Yeah. It's not just that he's in captivity; that's bad enough. But they're being he's being kept on land and like hosed down with water. Gorgo is a sea creature. And we get a scene where we see how Sam and Joe are dealing with their success differently. Joe is like living it up. We see he's got like a nice new suit on and he seems to be flashing his wealth. Um, And Sam, meanwhile, is shown apparently just like hiding in a trailer at the circus where perhaps Sean is living like Sean. The kid is seen sleeping there. 
Uh, again, it's not exactly clear, but it almost suggests that like Sam and Joe have adopted Sean. Maybe I don't know. Like they're, they, they are taking care of him now. And, uh, Sam is seen drinking heavily and he says, uh, and like Joe comes in and says, Hey, you know, how about coming out and having a few drinks? And Sam's like, I'm having a few drinks right now. Sam is clearly not happy with how things are going. Uh, and Joe is like, stop having feelings. Let's just take the money and, (laughs) you know, be happy. But Sam has a, Sam has a bad premonition about everything. He's like, something bad's going to happen. I can just feel it. And suddenly, and what do you know, it's, it's prescient because they get a phone call and it's an urgent meeting with the scientists from Dublin. And they're like, Hey, we figured something out. The creature you captured is not an adult specimen. (laughs) Yeah. Whoops. Not an adult specimen. And then Sam says, you mean it isn't fully grown? (laughs) (laughs) They say, no, in fact, it's, it's very early in infancy. And they're like, okay, well, what would an adult look like? And then they open up this page where they just like put a finger down on this illustration of two Gorgo skeletons that are exactly the same, but one is like 10 times bigger than the other. And it's, you know, it's not quite an actual Gorgosaurus, uh, skeleton that they have illustrated here but it is more in keeping with a realistic i'm i'm this may be another uh, uh, dinosaur species that they're just using uh, the the skeleton illustration from but um it is very hard to imagine the monster that we've seen (laughs) having this skeleton at the at the center of it um there's a lot of meat on those bones yeah, and they're they're upset. They're like, "Wow, that would make the adult nearly two hundred feet tall." And the the scientists are like, "Yep." Uh, so obviously, we gotta we gotta notify the authorities. And uh, Joe responds by saying, "What are you trying to do? Stir up a whole hornet's nest because of a few calculations on a piece of paper? Nuts to that! Nuts to that! <laughs> I say." Uh, then next we see Gorgo back in his enclosure. So he's. He's in this concrete pit and it's surrounded by electric fencing. But we see Gorgo testing the fences for weaknesses systematically. He remembers. Clever girl. Exactly. Meanwhile, back on Nera Island, uh, well, remember McCartan, the, the corrupt archaeologist and harbormaster? Well, <laughs> we see him in his harbormaster shack just examining his precious Viking gold with a magnifying glass. I guess this is all he does in his free time. And uh, he's sitting there, and then suddenly a Gorgo-like creature rises up out of the sea and attacks Nera, and McMartin, um, or McCartan is crushed. And so, uh-oh, you know what's next. This is Gorgo's mom, and the Gorgo matriarch is on the way to London. Oh, man. You messed up now, humans. So we see all the British radio operators, naval authorities, they're trying to make contact with Nera Island, but not a word from them. Uh, and then so the next thing is, let's see if we can use our precious uh, national stock footage reserves to figure out what's <laughs> going on. So it, it, we see lots of naval engagements, stock footage of like battleships moving their guns around and firing into the water and uh, chugging along and then close ups of just admirals with binoculars looking out over the water. There is a naval engagement between a, a battleship and Gorgo's mother. Who do you think is going to prevail here? Oh, it's it's going to be the monster. But, of course, we see the authorities back in London making these gloating statements about how the creature was undoubtedly destroyed. You know, it could not possibly be a match for our Navy. 
But then they, they get a phone call and we see this guy on the phone. He's like, oh, really? Capsized? Oh, no. Mm. Uh, so they're getting the bad news and they figure out that, that the creature is Gorgo's mother and it is on the way to London following a trail left in the sea, the ooze that had been dripping off of Gorgo when they traveled by boat. Mm. She's coming after him. So what what are you going to do? We've got a bigger, you know, a 10 times bigger monster on the way. Sam has an idea. Uh, uh, Sam says, well, we got to turn Gorgo loose. We got to let him loose and send him back to the sea while we've still got a chance. But Dorkin and Joe do not want to lose out on on their their profits. Uh, Joe says, what's the matter with you? This is the 20th century. There must be some way of handling an overgrown animal. And uh, the admirals give assurances that there will be no problem stopping this creature. <laughs> so, like the the authorities are like, no, 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 don't don't release Gorgo. You you keep making money at the circus. We will defeat the monster. Uh, and then later that night, we see Sam. Sam like gets drunk and tries to release Gorgo, and this leads to a fight with Joe, in which Sam is knocked unconscious. And Gorgo is not released. Uh, Sean is just here, like watching the, these adults fight. And then Gorgo's mother arrives. And from here until the end of the movie, it is just a long series of Mother Gorgo attacks. Mother Gorgo versus more of the British Navy. They launch torpedoes. They bombard her with heavy guns. They drop depth charges, all to no effect. She penetrates the defense, swims up the estuary, up the river, and she's coming for Battersea Park. Uh, there, there's a scene where she's like coming up into the harbor. I guess this is on the river uh, in London. And uh, the military tries to stop her by dumping petrol in the river and setting it on fire. And she clearly doesn't like that, but she is not deterred. And Rob, I caught a picture. There's one scene where it just cuts to these random onlookers who are like watching Mother Gorgo get set on fire with these faces <laughs> like, wow, so cool. Yeah, and we all, we also get a Burning Man stunt in all of this, uh, which was also quite terrifying. Oh, is that? Wait, wh- what do you have in mind? Somebody in the Gorgo suit or a, or a human? A uh, human uh, at some point oh. in all of this. I mean, there's a it, some of the chaos kind of <laughs> uh, melts together in, in my mind, but I distinctly remember at least one shot of a of a, of a man on fire. Oh, interesting. I, I don't recall that, but I believe you. There are a lot of effects back to back here, so mm-hmm. they kind of like. They, they wash over you at some point. Uh, but we see the Army and Civil Defense Authorities making emergency announcements. They start clearing out the streets. They're running around on, on uh, bullhorns saying, don't panic. You will be notified when the emergency is over. Uh, these shots of people running around. There are tanks in the streets. We see officials discuss the possibility of using atomic weapons, but they decide against it wisely. Uh, and then we see Gorgo's mother just smashing landmarks. So she comes up on the tower bridge, smashes it. Um, at some point, we get close-ups on these British soldiers, and I'm like, why do they look like they're they're outfitted to go fight in World War One? I, I, I assume this was the the standard uniform of the day. I, I I, Gorgo so. would get it right. I <laughs> I believe it. Yeah, but they it is surprisingly uh, antiquated looking like uniforms and helmets. But maybe that 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 was the outfit in '61. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, nothing, nothing stopping Mother Gorgo. So uh, as we were talking about earlier, the city smashing does go on for a long time and it gets somewhat tedious, I would say. Uh, this is, I would say, kind of a low point for a lot of giant monster movies. And it's a tough balance because in a way, 
the city smashing is what you're there for. That's sort of yeah. part of the part of the appeal of the movie. On the other hand, in a lot of these movies, there's just more of it than you actually need. Yeah. Uh, eyes are always bigger than your stomach. <laughs> yes, exactly. You're like, yeah, this looks great. And then like, oh, wow, it's still it's still happening. It's still going. But. You know, the, the really uh, memorable moments are, of course, when the monster uh, keys in on a particular landmark. And we do get some of that action here. Yeah, exactly. So this one has the same issue a lot of these movies do. The, the, the smashing, I think, goes on a little too long. There's a surplus of it. But on the other hand, as we said earlier, it's superb model work. I love the way a lot of this looks. It's very tactile and pleasurable mm-hmm. smashing to observe. At one point, the I think actually the the army like accidentally shoots Big Ben or the the, <laughs> the clock tower. They like launch a missile through it, trying to hit uh, Mother Gorgo. Uh, so you know, how do you think this is going to end? Will the power of tanks and guns and bombs stop Gorgo's mother? What what do you, what do you think? No. Um, yeah, so we we see you know our characters running around trying to get out of harm's way. At one point, Sean is uh, like drawn to Gorgo's mother. He's like approaching her when everybody else is fleeing, and we see Joe have kind of a hero turn. Joe has been the the selfish, the more selfish, greedy one in this act so far. But when Sean is in harm's way, Joe goes to rescue him and bring him out of harm's way. And we see Joe and Sean, uh, they're chased into the underground, and then the tunnels are collapsing and flooding, but they make it out. Yeah, this uh, segment with uh, with them uh, in the tunnels, I thought was very effective. Like in general, all of the monster destruction going on, um, you know, even though, like you said, there is a lot of it. But we do cut to all of these scenes of the crowds in full panic mode, uh, in like street level understanding of the destruction, and then our character level um, understanding of the destruction, and that does make it feel a lot more real. And this, there's one segment in particular where. Uh, Joe and Sean are just in there in the crowd crush. Uh, everyone's just been going down into the tunnels, into the subway tunnels there. And there's this terrifying scene where like they make it into the uh, tunnels proper and behind them, uh, again, crowds of people. And then the, the ceiling collapses. Like yeah. Gorgo just destroys all of them and like hundreds of people die. Uh, it's, uh, you know, the, the, it, uh, it would seem to be the case anyway. And only Joe and Sean make it out. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, that that was effective. Like that made me feel the, the chaos and the destruction of these sequences. So it's not just man in rubber suit fall on bridge. Yeah, I would emphasize that like nothing this here does not look funny. Like this is a the way it's visually realized, these scenes are very like dark and grim. Yeah. So of course as the the chaos is going on, we get a lot more radio reports, you know, like the radio reporter says like Piccadilly, the heart of London. Words can't describe it. There's been nothing like it, not even in the worst of the blitz. This section is a complete shambles. People running mad with fear. Uh, and we see on the street level, there's like a there's an end times prophet who's wearing a sign that says repent. The end is nigh. Um, and uh, the, the, we see the admirals and the Dublin scientists trying to come up with a plan to like electrocute Mother Gorgo. The admirals like how much voltage will we need? And the Dublin scientist is like, oh, uh, two to three million volts. But that's only a guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then why do you even say it? It, it really they, they do a great job of making it feel rather hopeless because yeah. at this point, there's just no real plan. Uh, and it seems like nothing is going to stop the absolute destruction um, of the city unless they were maybe to do something like release little Gorgo, uh, which nobody is actually doing. 
Yeah, like Sam suggested before yeah. this all started. Sam was right. Sam was right. Uh, so they've got this plan. You know, we get a lot of moralizing from the radio reporters talking about, uh, you know, the the wire, all the uh, the the electricity of London has been redirected to uh, the wires to this animal small enclosure. Will it be enough? Will it be enough to stop this huge beast? Where will the miracle be granted, or will it be yet another of man's puny efforts to oppose this irresistible force of ancient nature? I love that part. The miracle. The yeah. miracle of keeping this mother monster from her young. Yeah. And like, in, in a way, I, I mean, I guess it's it's a rather effective uh, part of the film here because it's like, just do the, 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 the like, like the, the answer is right there in front of you. Yeah. Like, why don't you do that? Release the monster. Why? Like this, this desperate, uh, you know, egotistical uh, desire uh, to defeat nature instead of like bending at least a little bit to it here. Uh, and instead, they're just going to invite absolute destruction. Rob, you're, you're not understanding. Dorkin would lose some money. I mean, that's right, because on top of the tickets, the concessions alone, like <laughs> he was banking on that. Yeah, yeah. All right. So in the end... Mother Gorgo, she makes it through. She rescues her baby. And Gorgo and Mother Gorgo, they trek back out to the ocean. They get in the water and they, they start swimming away. And we get the, the more of the, 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 like, crazy commentary from the radio reporter saying, we prayed for a miracle. Maybe our prayers have been answered. It's this speech that goes on for a long time. Uh, he's saying, uh, in the end, uh, she uh, turns with her young, leaving the prostrate city, leaving the haunts of man, and leaving man himself to ponder the proud boast that he alone is lord of all creation. It is a very he tampered in God's domain kind of ending. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, and then we see in the end, actually, they give the last word to Sean, the child who uh, who's watching the, the creatures leave. And Sean says, you're going back now, back to the sea. And uh, I do have to say, in the final shot where they're showing Gorgo and Mother Gorgo going back into the water, they make little Gorgo look really tiny in comparison. Yeah, yeah. It kind of drives home the obscenity of the whole act of, uh, of keeping this, this creature hostage. Yeah. So that's the end of Gorgo, Pity the Monster. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's uh, reflecting back on it more here. Uh, yeah, I feel like it. It it does have a, a strong message that it's uh, trying to drive home, and yeah, you can't help but wonder if this too might have uh, had an had an impact on the star. You know, this this might have like laid some of the groundwork for uh, Bill Travers' um, uh, later involvement in uh, animal rights activism. Uh, I mean, not officially, <laughs> but but maybe a little bit in addition to Born Free. So I'd say final verdict. Um... Uh, I, I think Gorgo is a tremendously enjoyable movie. It's, uh, of course, as I said in the beginning, funny in very concept, funny in some elements of execution, quite strong in other elements of execution. So I think it's a it's a fairly good entry in the giant monster movie canon. Uh, you know, it's it's not quite your on the level of like your original Godzilla and stuff like that. But of the sort of mid-level big monsters, it's uh, it's one of the better ones, I think. Do you think they could come back and do a Shin Gorgo, uh, a <laughs> Gorgo movie inspired by Shin Godzilla? That where half of it is like uh, the British Navy having meetings and then having yeah, meetings yeah. about other meetings that should be organized. Yeah, we didn't get enough meetings in this film about uh, relations with Ireland, about yeah. uh, about Gorgo rights, uh, who has the rights to the monster and uh, the, you know, the exporting uh, of the monster and so forth. There, there's a lot that could be done there.
Mm. For listeners who don't recall, in the past, we're we're big fans of Shin Godzilla. Uh, I haven't seen the the more recent one, Godzilla minus one, but I've been hearing very good things about it. Yeah, same, same. So it's a reminder that even though the giant monster movie, uh, you know, we think of it as being just you know, very formulaic, and if you've seen one, you've seen them all, and that everything that could be done has been done, and the only upgrades you're going to get are going to be effects-based, right? But it's not the case. Like, clearly there are still interesting stories to tell with giant monsters, and uh, and they keep coming. Uh, and I say, that's wonderful. I'm all for it. Hear, hear. All right, we're going to go ahead and close the book on Gorgo here, but we'd love to hear from you if you have thoughts on Gorgo, on other kaiju movies that we mentioned in this episode, or ones we didn't mention, just what your favorites are. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. We'll share the email address in just a moment here, uh, and you can write into us. Just a reminder to everyone that Stuff to Blow Your Mind is primarily a science podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. But on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film on Weird House Cinema. If you want a list of all the movies we've covered so far, the best place to go is to head on over to letterboxd.com. That's L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D.com. Our username is Weird House, and we have a list of all the films we've covered, and sometimes there's a peek ahead at what's coming up next. Uh, also, while I have you, if you have not rated and reviewed uh, the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed, uh, do so. It helps us out. Leave us a nice review. Leave us a bunch of stars. And I should also add that if you listen to this podcast on an Apple, on an Apple device or you're using like Apple Podcasts, uh, pop in there and make sure that you're still subscribed, that you're still receiving downloads. That also helps us out. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to uh, say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.